You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Stand with me again. I want to read the portion that we have for today. We're actually in Matthew 6. We just finished Matthew 5, right? Sermon on the Mount, two and a half, I think, um, um, chapters. But Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4. Matthew 6, 1 to 4. This is what God's word says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful word, uh, your word that has um, just the power to save, the power to lift, the power to comfort, the power to bring peace. Father, I ask that you would do a great and amazing work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, just bear fruit in our hearts. Get us closer to Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So Taya is our oldest. She's three and a half. Taya is at the why questions stage. (laughs) Parents are smiling. They know all about that. And she'll ask stuff like, why can't I have chocolate for breakfast? You know, why don't veggies taste like cake? You know, stuff like that. Yeah, I know. And she'll ask some other, some better questions, like kind of, that kind of make you think, you know, why questions. As exhausting, because they are exhausting, I'll tell you. It's like, oh my goodness, okay, how do I answer this one? Just, oh, you know, do you really want to ask this? You know, are you sure? As exhausting as these why questions get, I can tell you from my own experience that there are moments um, when an inquisitive question of a toddler, of, of my daughter, comes with a measure of conviction. I, I actually got this one a couple of weeks ago, um, and she goes, Tata, why were you so mad? Even yesterday, I was, I was taking care of the kids. Emma was at work, and I was playing with them, and I got just a little bit frustrated, annoyed. And I kid you not, she looks at me. We were, I was sitting down, eye level, and she put her hand on my shoulder and says, Tata, it's okay. No worries. That's what she said. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> So her questions come at times with a measure of conviction because they force me, they force you to articulate the reasons why. The reasons behind why we do what we do, the motivation behind our actions. I'm assuming that some parents, I don't think any of us here, some parents get these kind of questions as well. Why do we only pray when we go to church or when grandma is around? Why do we sing at church, but we never do it at home, mommy? (laughs) Why do you seem so interested in the Bible, daddy, but at home you never open the Bible? Why were you so angry in the car at mommy, but you were so nice to everyone else at church? 
And so when kids are inquisitive, it forces us to realize that sometimes, or maybe I should say many times, we do the right things for the wrong reasons or with the wrong heart. So what I want to ask us this morning is why, why do you do the things that you do? Why did you come to church this morning? If you're a visitor, just hang in there. Why, why do you give to the poor? Why do you pray? Why do you serve at church? Why, and specifically, if we want to be faithful to our text for today, and we do, what's the reason behind your giving? What's the reason for your so-called generosity? Shall we answer this question then? Because that's pretty much the challenge of this text. What's the reason? What's the motivation behind your giving? Well, in answering all these why questions, we first have to look at the fact that our Father in heaven is an incredibly generous God. And simply put, we have to live more like him. We can just close the Bible now, pray, and go home. Because <laughs> that's the reason. And by the way, I, I, I came out swinging this morning, and I'm not pulling any punches. We're, we're getting right into it. Um, another reason is this, and this is actually the most important of reasons, of the reasons why, we, you know, why, we, why we're giving, why we're serving, why we love God, why we give generously, why we live selflessly for the glory of God. It's because Jesus loved us first and he gave his life for us. It's very simple, but very powerful. I mean, 1 John 4, 19 says, it's pretty clear, we love because he first loved us. He gave us the most amazing gift ever, salvation, forgiveness, and, and now we belong to the most amazing family. And because he loved us, we now love. We give generously because he first gave generously. We live selflessly because he first lived selflessly. And for the rest of our lives, we learn to live more and more like our King and Savior by the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What's interesting is that the previous verse, Matthew 5, 48, and we looked at it last Sunday with Lucas. If you haven't heard that message, please listen to last week's message. Uh, but last verse in chapter 5, this is what it says. Be perfect as, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or, and Lucas was saying a better translation of this would be, um, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, or you shall be perfected as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus teaches us on giving right after calling us to aim for this high standard of living. So it just makes sense that one of the ways we should aim for this incredibly high standard is to be more like our Father, Heavenly Father, by giving generously. One way of being more like our Father, giving generously. In this section that we have in front of us for today, the four verses from the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus again confronts the error of the religious leader's misinterpretation of the law. And remember, we went through the six different commands, six different sayings in chapter 5. What, what they did is they lessened God's commands on areas like murder, um, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving one's neighbor. Now in chapter 6, Jesus confronts the wrong manner, the wrong way of living in which they did 
their acts of righteousness, basically the wrong manner in which they lived for God. And specifically in three areas of life, when it comes to their giving, which we're looking at today, and then prayer, we're going to look at that next week, and then fasting two weeks from from today. Now, I believe that the entire context follows Christ's strong words in verse 20 of last chapter, chapter 5. That if our righteousness does not surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is warning his followers, warning us to make sure we bear fruit that match with what's inside of our hearts. That's the only way that you can surpass the Pharisees' righteousness. Because bottom line, he could care less. Jesus could care less about your doing and your giving if your heart is not in the right place. In other words, your acts of righteousness, my acts of righteousness are worthless if my heart is not in it. If your heart is not the the very thing that pushes you to do these acts of righteousness, your giving and doing is worthless, Jesus says. So the why, the heart, the motivation of the heart, I believe is the big picture here in our passage. The heart behind our deeds is the heart of this text. But at the same time, which is pretty awesome, at the same time, Jesus teaches us some pretty amazing principles about how to live radically generous lives that resemble our Father in heaven and that pleases Him. So the question we want to ask right at the beginning of us getting into this text is this. What principles can we perceive? What principles can we observe about living a radically generous life? Well, here's our first answer. Here's our first principle. And at the same time, this is our first main point. And we're going to have three main points and a few subpoints, but three main points. And the first one is this. Believers will pursue generous giving as a lifestyle. Believers, that's, that's us guys, will pursue generous giving as a lifestyle. You may ask, right, like why? Why is that? Well, because that's who you are now. That's who you are. You're in God's family. You have his nature now. That's who we are. We give because he gives. We're generous because he is generous. But did you notice what verse 2 starts with? So when you give to the needy, when you give, what does this phrase, when you give to the needy, imply about Jesus' expectation of his followers? The fact that Christ says, when you give to the needy, not if you, you know, if you give to the needy, implies that God expects believers, expects us to give and to be generous like him. If we go back to the Old Testament, you know, we need to know that this was clearly commanded all over the, the, the Old Testament. Leviticus 25, I'm not going to read it. Deuteronomy 15, so many passages where this was commanded. In fact, many rabbis overemphasized the need to give. They actually really took it out of proportion. Some taught that giving would actually atone for your sins. Does that sound familiar? This is taught within the Apocrypha, which was written during the intertestamental period before the writing of the New Testament. In the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church canonized the Apocrypha for this exact reason, as it supports salvation by works. However, it wasn't recognized as canon previously. Very interesting to, to follow that, that, that line of thought and, you know, that doctrine. Though the rabbis overemphasized the importance of giving, 
And again, let's just make this crystal clear. We are all saved by faith and not works. Amen? By faith and not works. Nevertheless, God certainly commands and expects his followers, his people, to give generously. Jesus taught that this spiritual discipline, if you may, of giving generously will be a part of his disciples' lives. It's just natural that you will look more like him in this area too. Giving, he says, will be their consistent practice and discipline and way of living, way of life. Now, since we're talking about giving, since we're talking about and we ought to give generously, let me ask this question. What are some general principles for Christian giving that we see in God's word? I think it's a good time now to to kind of look at that. A good time to look at a few other passages and, and learn some other principles for giving. It gives us a, it's an opportune time. I think it'll be very beneficial for us to quickly look at some Christian principles for giving. Let me just throw the first one out there. Christian giving naturally happens when Christ is truly first in our lives. I'll say that again because that's, that's a big one. Christian giving naturally happens when Christ is truly first in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 8, 2-5, Paul describes how the, how the poor Macedonian Christians financially supported the struggling Jerusalem church. Have you, have you heard that? Did you know that the Macedonian churches were extremely poor, but they begged, they begged Paul to allow them to support their brothers in Jerusalem. Like, how, what? That's craziness. So radical generosity is not primarily rooted in what we have, but who we have. Paul said that they they first gave themselves to the Lord. So if you read that passage, it says that they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to others. If God isn't first in our lives, then we won't be generous givers. Instead, we'll be selfish like the rest of the world, concerned primarily with our personal benefit. We will live by sight, not by faith. We'll live by numbers and by earthly goals and plans, not by faith. So let me ask you then, are you giving yourself fully to the Lord? Are you a generous giver? Because your father is a generous giver. Are you giving yourself fully to the Lord? Your time, your money, your goals, your aspirations. If not, you will not be radically generous. Let me throw another principle at us this morning. Christian giving should be planned and intentional, not haphazard, not random. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, Each one of you should just give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a what? A cheerful giver. So the fact that we must decide in our hearts implies that our giving should be prayerfully and wisely planned. Let me ask you this question then. What should our planned giving include then? Our our plan for giving should include regular offerings to our local church. But let me just just throw at you at least a verse. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2 says, With regard to the collection for the saints, please follow the directions that I gave to the churches of Galatia. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside some income and save it to the extent that God has blessed you so that a collection will not have to be made when I come. Paul taught that every time they gathered on Sunday in keeping with their income, they should set aside money to give. And I think, I think we should do the same. 
right? As the Lord provides income, whether that would be every two weeks or every month, we should prayerfully give to our local church. Also, our plan for giving should include setting aside money for the urgent needs of others. I think we do this really well as Christians. Generally speaking, Ephesians 4.28 says, The one who steals must, must, must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, doing good with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with the one who has need. Having something to share with those in need is what God wants us to do also. These needs might include helping a student on a, go on a mission trip or helping somebody who's struggling financially, supporting an orphanage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many needs out there. People ask this question all the time. Can I give my offerings to other ministries or needs instead of to my church? I always say do both. We're commended on both of these things in the word. Galatians 6, 6 says, Now the one who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with the one who teaches it. There's so many other passages that, that we could read from. If we don't support our pastors, our ministries, and all that's happening at church, then they won't be able to serve you know, the church and take care of their families at the same time. It's just, it's just normal, right? I know some churches take that to their advantage, and there's a lot when it comes to money in church, and people are scared. Listen, we're talking about biblical teaching here, right? And we're not scared of that, even though just because others ruin it for us or, or it seems that like this is biblical teaching, right? Now, they, they won't be able, we won't be able to mobilize and connect in the community to, and, and do the things that a church does. Like it or not, a church needs money to function as well. And this is commanded by God that we all support our local church first. But God also commands us to help those in need, which is often random as, as those needs arise. Again, Ephesians 4.20, it implies that we should plan to be able to meet those needs. Here's a good idea. You generous givers, here's an idea. Why don't we budget regular church offerings and also flexible money for random needs? Just put aside God's money. Put it aside and, you know, give to the church and then whatever you have left, or just help others, Right? If there are no random needs, then give the money to the church or save it because you will get your chance to give it away. I promise you, if you want to be generous, you have places to be generous towards. I guarantee you that. Let me throw another principle at you. Christian giving must be offered with a joyful heart. Oh, this is a, this is a good one. As mentioned in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God wants our giving to be done with the right heart with joy, since he loves a cheerful giver. Listen, it should not be out of reluctance or compulsion. Don't feel pressured to give. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need it necessarily, right? And we need to understand that God doesn't need our money. He wants what? Our worship. He wants our heart, as Zoeana was, was telling us this morning. And so we must be joyful in our giving, and joy, and this joy should come from our desire to please our Father in heaven and from our desire to help others. Another principle would be Christian giving should be sacrificial. Sacrificial. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God commanded people to bring what? Their leftovers? Their best. Their best. In fact, that, that seems to be the reason Cain's offering was rejected, while Abel's offering was accepted. 
Genesis 4 says that Cain gave some of the fruits of the field, while Abel gave the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn and the fat portions were considered the best in those days. So the problem was that Cain wanted the best part for what? For himself. There was no sacrifice in his life. We have to watch for this church. And this doesn't only refer to money. This is referring to our time, our talents, what God is calling us to. That, this is how a lot of our offerings are given in the church today. There's no real sacrifice. Our hearts don't say, God, you are the best and worth more than I can offer. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, David says, I will not offer to my Lord, my God, burnt sacrifices that cost me nothing. Is your giving sacrificial? Is your giving sacrificial? Do you give from your time? Do you give from financially? Do you give from what you have? Do you give, are you generous with it? Or are you just giving some of the, some of the fruits of the field, like Cain, the leftover change in your pocket? God wants our best church. Our giving must be sacrificial. And then I'll challenge you with one more principle, and then we'll continue. Christian giving should ideally be continually increased. I didn't write the Bible. I'm just preaching it. But let me prove this point to you. So Christian giving should ideally be continually increased. Check this out. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all eagerness, and in the love from us that is in you, make sure that you excel in this act of kindness too. What's the act of kindness? The context is giving. The context is giving here. Often churches emphasize giving one's tithe, right? So 10% of our income, which was commended in the Old Testament. But even that wasn't necessarily 10%, but actually a lot more. We're not going to get into that now. Now, in the New Testament, there are never any numerical percentages required of our giving. However, we do have teachings like 2 Corinthians 8-7, which says we must seek to excel in giving. This means 10% is a great place to start. It's a great place to start. But if we, we stay there as God blesses us with more, and God gives us more, we're not obeying what Jesus is com- you know, commanding here. That's not the heart of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. We should seek to excel in our giving. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says that we should give according to the extent that God has blessed you Or this can be translated as in keeping with how God prospers you. Ooh. So the new job that that, that you got and you make more money, you know what that extra money is for? To give to others. Because God wants to give through you. That's the point. Not for us to get a new car, for us to get a new house, a better this and better that. You know, no, no, no. Are you striving to excel in your giving as God is blessing you with more and more and more? Or are you keeping it for yourself? Am I keeping it for myself? Again, not only talking about finances, although that's the, that's the focus today, but we're, this is a bigger principle, you know, time. What does your time go? And talents and giftings and all of that. And by the way, on the other extreme, you don't need to make much to be able to give generously. Did you know that? Because some people will use this excuse, well, I'm not making much. Well, you're making something because you're alive, you're living, right? You, you got to do something with your hands. 
So out of that something, why don't you pursue being a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ and learn how to give generously? It's not how much or how little you make. It's about what you do with what God gives you. It's all about that. Again, the, the first point that we're trying to make here, and I know we took a, a side, you know, kind of a long side note here, but Christ said, when you give, not if you give. Our giving is expected, and therefore, it should be a regularly practiced spiritual discipline, meaning it should be a lifestyle. Let's move to the second main point. Believers must guard against wrong motives in their giving. We must guard against wrong motives in our giving, church. Let's read verse 1 again. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Here in verse 1, Jesus warns us. He warns his disciples not to practice their, their righteous deeds in front of others to be seen by them. Now, in the rest of Matthew 6, Jesus focuses not only on giving, but praying and fasting. We already, we already kind of said this. But, but I, chose the word, I chose the word guard in this second main point, guard yourself, guard your heart, because the, the, the phrase be careful that we have in here has the sense of being on guard. Being on guard, that's what Jesus tells his disciples. Now, the reality is that there is a danger that comes along with all ministry, all the serving, all the giving, it is hard not to perform them. It is hard not to do them without having any concerns about what people think about us or how they perceive us, right? I'll be honest with you. This is a stronghold for many who serve in public ministry. It is such a stronghold. It can cause great discouragement or great pride. Both are problems. Both extremes are problems. And it just proves our ministry is not being done for the Lord or for God alone. And Jesus is just, he's being very loving here because he warns us of this reality and we must pay attention. Let's read verse two again. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Isn't it interesting that seeking the praise of others instead of, of God was the primary sin of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. John 12, 46 says, they loved praise from men more than praise from God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but is that us also? And you know what Christ calls them? We have the word right here. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. The word literally means to wear a mask. That's what it means originally. To wear a mask and was used of an actor. Now, an actor takes a false identity and, plus, and puts on a theatrical performance in order to receive applause. That's, that's the whole thing about, you know, acting. Sadly, this is how a lot of Christians' works are done. Preaching, teaching, praying, and as mentioned in this passage, giving. We're Hollywood actors, aren't we? Because we're so good at this. We do good things. But a lot of times we do it with the wrong heart. We're good actors. And Jesus says they are worthless if in your heart is not, if your heart is not in the right place. If your heart is not the very thing that pushes these good deeds outside, they're worthless. And by the way, the right place 
The right place that our hearts needs to be in is this, for God's glory, not yours. For God's glory, not yours. Church, guard your heart. That's the point. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. We must be so careful of this in our own Christian lives, in our own serving and in our giving. Isn't it sad that something as good as helping the poor can be turned into a PR stunt that is all for our own benefit? Isn't it sad? However, this is so natural to our flesh. This is so natural to, to, you know, to our sin nature. We are so easily consumed with self-glory, aren't we? Let me ask you a question. How can we know if we are doing our giving and other good works to be seen by others instead of God? How, how can we tell? What's a good test? Well, I believe that we can tell by asking ourselves some specific questions that we need to answer honestly. So we need to analyze our hearts often. So here are some questions that we can ask ourselves every once in a while. They're up on the screen. I'll just go through them. Take this test once in a while to see if you're actually doing things for, you know, for men or for God. Is it important for you that others see or hear about your good works and accomplishments? Is that important to you? Is it? Do you always have to tell others about your successes? And it just eats at you because you just don't have that time in that conversation. It's like, but you're about to, oh, oh, just, I, need to, I need to tell, I need to say this, I need to say this. If so, maybe the pride of the Pharisees is in your heart, in my heart. How do you respond when others praise you? Are you overly excited? If so, maybe it reveals a desire for self-glory. And the last one, how do you respond when people criticize you or don't recognize your accomplishments? Does this overly discourage you or even make you upset or mad? If so, your focus, my focus, might not primarily be on serving God and blessing others. It's tough, isn't it? It's challenging. Can we just be honest with each other this morning? All of us have experienced these negative tendencies to some extent in some way. It is a reminder that we are sinners and we must guard our hearts always. Church, this is our highest calling, just in case it's not clear. God's honor and pleasure must always be our primary pursuit, even before the benefit of others. Amen? Now, this begs the question, how should we guard our hearts from wrong motives? Like, Jesus, can you give us something? Like, how, how, can, we, how can we guard our hearts? Yes, great. You've been talking about be careful, guard. But how do we do it? Let's, let's read verses two and four, because I think there's at least a couple of things that we can glean from, uh, just tips on how to guard our hearts. So he says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by them. Truly, I tell you, they have received their full reward. But when you give to the needy, do not, check this out, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So let's just look at two things that I believe Jesus gives us here. Um, just tips on how to guard our hearts from just wrong motives. And the number one is, is this. To guard our hearts from wrong motives in our good works, we must practice secrecy when performing them. Just do it in secret as much as you can. 
Now, Christ said to, to, to not announce it with the trumpets. So that means that we must aim to practice our good deeds in giving in secret. Now, it's not a sin for others to see. Just want to make sure that that's, you know, everyone understands that. It's not a sin for others to see. Many times we just, you just can't avoid, you know, being seen, right? You just cannot. And also, Jesus said a city on a hill cannot be hidden. That was the previous chapter. Referring to believers being a light, the light of the world. So here is the problem, though. The problem is that our hearts are prone to being consumed with the thoughts and approval of others instead of the Lord's. That's the problem. So as much as possible, we should practice secrecy in our giving and other good deeds just so we don't get any ideas, just so we're not tempted. So the idea is that we try not to tell others, you know, not the other way around. Do you know why? Because God's knowledge of our works is enough and is sufficient. And God's approval is enough. That's the goal, actually. The only goal. In church, the same goes for everything that we do in life. Same goes for all of our successes, all of our accomplishments, ministry successes, you name it. We should try to keep those a secret unless, and this is a big unless, unless it's more beneficial for others to know. To be encouraged, but please watch for this. It could be a double-edged sword. It could go bad really quickly. Did you know that Paul didn't share many of his visions and spiritual experiences until it was absolutely necessary and beneficial for others to hear? Did you know that? I challenge you to read 2 Corinthians um, chapter 12 and see for yourself. Do you know why? Because he didn't want people, believers, to think too highly of himself. Now, that's humility. God can do a lot with that. But with the proud, mm -mm, not so much. He stands against the proud. So as much as you can, friend, do them in secret. By the way, we live for the audience of one, not the audience of many. The other thing that I, I believe that we see in the passage, a tip, something that will help us guard our hearts is this. We must practice immediately forgetting what we've done by not self-consciously dwelling on them. He says here in the text, or at least he implies, Jesus implies this. When Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, since most people are right-handed, he assumes most people will give with their right hand, right? So while giving, you should make sure the left hand is unaware of what the right hand is doing. What Jesus is doing here, he's using this metaphor to say that we should even hide our good works from ourselves as much as we can. And I think the point is that even though others might, might be unaware of the good works, and that's, a lot of times that's the case, right? Many times we're absorbed into them. Like, ooh, I'm so amazing. I'm so good. Hmm, what I've done. Hey, you want to listen to this podcast? It's a sermon by me. Oh, just please listen to it 50 times if you can. Right? <laughs> It, now, I went to the extreme, or maybe not. Maybe that's how we do life. In other words, we're extremely broken and proud. We continually replay our giving, our teaching, our serving, and other good works over and over in our head. Mm, I'm so good. Oh, wow, I said that. That's so amazing. You should listen to me sometimes. And that just leads to either pride or insecurity. It will not end well. We either puff ourselves up thinking how great we are and how special we are, or we get really discouraged because we messed up again or we can't measure up. 
Both of these thought processes tell us that our primary goal in serving is not honoring the Lord and bringing him glory. Church, our goal, our focus should always be do your best to honor, to glorify the Lord and help others and make absolutely sure that you entrust the results and the glory to God. Amen? I know this is challenging. It really hit me hard this week too. But thank God for his word and thank God for his Holy Spirit that can help us to, to, that enables us to live more in these high standards because we cannot do it on our own. I know I can. And sure, there's a place for constructive reflection and evaluation. Yeah, there's a place for celebration. I'm not saying never throw a party and celebrate your successes. Right? There's a place for that. There's a place for searching our hearts and making sure we're doing the things the right way. And, and the reason for that is that we can improve in order to better glorify God and bless others. But, but after doing that briefly, we should forget our works, lest they turn into bragging or insecurity, which are both rooted in pride. If we look again at verse two, Jesus says that those who do their works for others to see have received what? They've received their reward. It's done, man. It is very interesting that the word have used here or, or have received in other versions is actually a commercial term, meaning to receive a sum in full and give a receipt for it. Isn't that interesting? And what Jesus is saying is that they will receive absolutely nothing else, no reward, because they already got their full payment and they gave out a receipt. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's official, it's legal now, no going back. You're done. How interesting is that? And if we fall into this trap, what this basically means is that our reward is the congratulation of others or our self-congratulation, but we will receive nothing from God. It's as if we haven't done anything at all. Church, we can't stress this enough. When it comes to our doing and giving, blessing others, our accomplishments, our successes, we must be satisfied with God being our only witness and having only his approval. Amen? May God help us to pursue this kind of living and giving. So, so far we looked at the fact that believers will pursue generous giving as a lifestyle and then believers must guard against wrong motives in their giving Let's finish with this last main point. Believers are going to be rewarded for selfless giving. Believers, we are going to be rewarded if, if we pursue this kind of selfless giving, this, this way of living. Verse four, so that your giving may be in secret, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, now, let me ask this question. Why should we pursue this kind of living, this kind of radical giving in secret? Why? Well, it's stated right here in this verse, verse four, Jesus encourages us to practice secrecy in our giving because it will be rewarded by God. Believe it or not, this is taught throughout the entire Bible as, as giving is part of this, if I should say this, it's the, Lord, the Lord's cycle of blessing. So let's just look at a couple of verses and see for ourselves. Proverbs eleven twenty five. you know what it says? It says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. So I guess what God is saying here is that he promises refreshment to those who refresh others by their generosity. And it sounds like this would be a reward or an earthly blessing for here and now. When we open our homes for others, I guess, or give sacrificially, it seems that he's saying that the same will happen to us somehow. 
Okay. Psalm 41.1 says the same thing. I'm not going to read it. You can read it at home. And there are so many other passages that say the same thing. But at this point, you may say, well, hold on a minute. You just read from the poetic books, Psalm and Proverbs, right? We really need to interpret those differently. Okay, sure. Here's 2 Corinthians 9.8. And the context here is of a cheerful giver. Okay, listen to what God says. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. How about that? It almost seems like God is saying, I will make sure givers never lack. Is he saying that? And to be honest with you, this promise is probably broader than just financial, financial provisions. You could also refer to God meeting our emotional, social, and physical needs. As a side note, it doesn't say that you will become filthy rich. It doesn't say that. Or even that you'll get a promotion. But that you will have all that you need. Okay? So all of these verses that we just read are talking about the category of God's earthly reward, right? Rewards that we can expect here and now if we pursue this kind of living. Generous giving. Now, drum roll, please. You have drums, but thank you. Thank you. The bigger kind of reward is this, and I really want us to recognize this as the bigger reward. Actually, the biggest reward, or the ultimate reward, ready for this? It's simply the reward of Jesus himself. It's simply the reward of Jesus himself. The reality is that this morning, Jesus is pointing us to the continual danger of this tunnel vision of our hearts, and our hearts are prone to turn in, in on ourselves, becoming self-centered, knowing the Christian lingo that will make us look better and look holier. But Jesus is not amused by our performance. He has no regard for earthly applause. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants my heart first. And when our hearts are centered on faith rather than sight, Oh, I don't have any money. I only have a hundred bucks, so I got to pay my bills. And I got to, when, when, when our hearts are centered on faith rather than sight, we will find a reward that will cause all the earthly recognition to pale in comparison. It's simply the reward of Jesus himself. We got to get that right. And then as a side note, because we're talking about rewards, as we get Christ here and now and forever, do you know what else we get? Through Christ, in Christ, we get the reward of God's recognition when he receives us in his glory and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then we get all of heaven and all the beauty up there or down here because it will come down. Anyways, see the heart of faith when we live in faith and not by sight, that kind of living recognizes that Jesus is worth much more than money. Jesus is much more worth than, than reputation. It, he's, it's worth much more than my feel-good kind of religiosity. Faith places its value in who Jesus is, not on who I am. Faith is centered on grace, the performance-shattering realization that there's nothing I can do to make myself righteous. It is only Jesus' grace at work in my life. So hypocrisy is really grounded in believing that my performance will earn me something before others. And somehow we buy into this lie that it will even earn us something before God. Like, really? We buy into the belief that my works earn God's pleasure. 
That if I do acts of service and people see it and recognize it, then God will love me more somehow. No, wrong. And I, as your pastor, need to hear this message over and over and over again because Jesus doesn't want our performance. He wants our heart first and foremost. Because if he's got your heart, guess what? You will live more and more like him. If he's got your heart, you will give generously. You will live sacrificially. It's just a matter of time. The Holy Spirit will work on you so that you will look more and more like your Savior and Lord. That's just it. I love the words of the old hymn. And they come as a beautiful invitation. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do you want to keep your motivations in check, church? We should. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, your Savior, your, the perfecter of your faith, your reward. Because whenever we turn our eyes on ourselves, we find out that we can do a lot of right things for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, that's worthless. It means nothing. I hope we realize that, that to a degree, all of us will wrestle with impure motives to a degree. We will always wrestle with mixed motivations. But what Jesus is inviting us to hear, listen to this. What Jesus is inviting us to hear is a continual calibration of our hearts and our motivation. A continual calibration of our hearts and our motivations so that we don't get that tunnel vision into ourselves how do we do that? Well, we, we spend time with him. We, we press into his word daily. We press into his presence by, by spending time with him in prayer daily. That's how you check your heart and motivation. That's how you stay focused on him, not on you. And as we do that, as we spend more and more time, because we realize that he is the ultimate reward. Our hearts are changed and changed some more and changed some more. Do you know why we don't give generously? Because we don't spend time with him. That's just it. So, oh Lord, help us. Would you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.